On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Paul Sanchez about the history of Pentecostalism. So we cover topics like just what is Pentecostalism, what's the historical shape, we cover figures like Charles Parham and his relationship to Pentecostalism. We think about why speaking in tongues is so important, and if there's a unified doctrinal statement on this among Pentecostals. We talk about Holy Spirit baptism, we talk about word of the Word of Faith movement, and prosperity gospelism, and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this was going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of The London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're podcast is devoted to serious thinking for a serious church, but we don't want to just be serious. I think a lot of times when you, you hear the, the word serious, there's sometimes this connotation of dry, arid, or stuffy, or something like that. That's not what we mean when we're talking about serious. We want to be serious about all sorts of things. We want to be careful Christian thinkers um, that are serious about virtues, Things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Those are the things that we've kind of tried to promote with, with the podcast and our online presence and everything. We're not perfect at this. I think we fail all the time. But we want to continue to encourage one another to say we can do – there, there is a way to be both academically rigorous and to also be gentle and kind and to really follow the model that we find in James 3 of this wisdom that is from above, that is open to reason, that is – that it has a particular posture about it. So we try to do that with the podcast and everything we do. And today I'm super pumped to have back Dr. Paul Sanchez. Uh, Paul's been on the podcast before. We talked about theological liberalism. It, it was awesome. And now this episode is also going to be awesome. I can tell you that it's going to be on the history of Pentecostalism. So I'll let Paul introduce how he got interested in this area and all the, and why that's something that has mattered to him and he's thought a lot about. But I do want to just commend him and his work. I think he's a, a, a tremendous uh, just individual. He, he straddles the, the line that we really want to promote people like this. So he's a pastor. I think he's a true pastor scholar. And he's got the right heart, the, the right tone, and he's also cares about careful thinking. I mean, if you're looking for people to look up to, there, there's there's few better people than Paul in the world. So I, I really want to commend what he's doing, uh, serving and loving the local church while also doing all this awesome academic stuff. So Paul, for those who didn't listen to your other episode, which if you haven't listened to it, you need to go listen to it. It's one of our most popular episodes and I loved it. I've listened to it twice myself. Go listen to it. But now, Paul, for those who don't know you, give me a little bit of background and then how is it that you are interested in thinking about Pentecostalism? Yeah, thank you, Jordan. That was that was incredibly kind of you. I, I'm going to see if I can get you to come introduce me at my church sometime. <laughs> yeah, that was very kind of you. Thank you. Uh, really enjoyed our last episode. Glad to be back. Um, really, this goes back to uh, my my birth and raising. Um, so, um, was born and raised in San Jose, California, and was at one church my entire life, a Pentecostal church in the Assemblies of God. My father was saved during the Jesus People movement. Um, and, you know, and actually we'll talk about that in a little bit, God willing. Um, but him and my uncle and my aunt and several other family members, all, all of them were completely without any Christian background whatsoever, very secular. Uh, in fact, my grandmother was a, was a, a witch. She was into witchcraft. Um, and so they're all saved in this Jesus people movement, these long haired hippies, these bunch of stoners and so on. 
Uh, my dad was a Mexican version of that. And basically, you know, they're saving this movement. So it was kind of, you know, from the very beginning, there's this charismatic impulse there. And then they settled it in some ways of God church. And so that's where I was raised. Um, and so all of my earliest memories in the church there until I was 19 years old when I moved away for college uh, was in that world. And so cut my teeth in ministry there. And and really have, have good memories. My deepest, you know, friends, my, my my oldest friendships are all still from that place and from those from those relationships. We we uh, get together for vacation, several of us, um, every year or every other year, you know, just to kind of reminisce. And and all of them are kind of still in that world, save like one friend. Um, and so that's I'm just, I'm no longer in the Pentecostal world myself, but I, I feel a connection to it because I I still kind of am able to keep up what's going on because of these old friends as well as professors and so on. And so I I did go to a Pentecostal um, Bible college, uh, what was Central Bible College in Springfield, Missouri. It's since so so Springfield, Missouri is the denominational headquarters for the Assemblies of God, and so. They had their major sort of liberal arts college or liberal arts university, which is Evangel University. They had a seminary, uh, AGTS, as somebody's got theological seminary, and they had the Bible college. I was at the Bible college. Now it's all been consolidated together, and so and so now it's Evangel University. But it was sort of the the uh, the flagship school. If you went to CBC, as they called it, you know, in the Somebody's of God, that was like a badge of honor. It's where all their you know greatest missionaries and preachers and so on and go for. I didn't know that going there. I just went there because. Uh, well, long story short, my mother's family's from Missouri. It was an opportunity for me to go somewhere besides California. I'd lived there my whole life. And I had a good experience. Uh, professors were orthodox and conservative. Uh, they were evangelical in, in so many ways, strong missionary impulse, something that I, I really respect about Pentecostalism. Um, but I came to some different convictions while I was there and ended up joining a Baptist church. My wife comes from the same background that I do, so she's deep in Pentecostalism as well. Her uh, her grandfather was a Pentecostal church planter and, and minister until he was in his 80s. Uh, her grandmother was uh, a Pentecostal evangelist, traveled around and spoke, and so deep roots there in her family as well. Um, so that's kind of my my background that gave the interest there. But I, I found some intellectual interest in it, reading some books when I was in seminary, because I, I started just being curious, you know, where did Pentecostalism come from when I was taking church history courses? So I read Grant Wacker's history on it and uh, Vincent's uh, Sinan's history and several other things and that kind of led me down a trail. But there's a really rich and fascinating history of the movement, even for someone who's not a Pentecostal or has no connection. Um, it's connections to sort of revivalism and some of the other things going on in theological streams at the time and really are, are very fascinating. And it's a global movement, so that's that's interesting and sort of colorful as well. And so that's what got me to the point of it. At one point, I was thinking about doing my dissertation on it, was led in a different direction, and I'm glad that I went that way. But uh, yeah, there's there's really a lot there, and it's basically only studied by Pentecostals primarily. And so for guys in Baptist circles, which is where I am now, um, it, it tends to give me sort of it, – it's, uh, it's a little more unique, and so it allows me a little bit of room. Mm. So let's start with kind of a, a 30,000 foot high level introduction to Pentecostalism. And maybe you can situate this uh, in the historical development of it. I know a couple of names um, that are associated with the early days of Pentecostalism were Charles Parham and, and William Seymour. So tell us who those guys are and what, what their roles were uh, in the founding of Pentecostalism. Yeah. So the, the, the 30,000 foot view really is almost necessary because it's, it's so diverse. There's so many different streams. There's so many. It's extremely decentralized. If Baptist life is decentralized, Pentecostalism is like triple decentralized. <laughs> like so, it's extremely diverse. But but at the same time, there's some simple features of it. I mean, it comes out of the the holiness movement in the late 19th century. 
And so if you trace back a little bit before that, the sort of there's Methodism and frontier religion that really is, is just part of quintessential evangelicalism, but there's this great revivalistic impulse throughout the 19th century. And once you get to, to sort of after the Civil War, 1870s, 80s, um, you have these, these holiness revival movements all over the frontier and in different parts of the South and Midwest. And Pentecostalism comes out of this sort of radical evangelicalism. And so the things that we would point to sort of in the early 1900s, those things are not coming, you know, sort of ex nihilo. They're not, not coming out of nowhere. There are sort of the phenomena of tongues and, and miraculous healing. There's reports of all of these things going on in the late 19th century. Um, and we can always dig down deeper historically and say, you know, were these things authentic? You know, what was what were these things going on? But the fact is, is there are reports of them, and it's all over the place. Um, there's a lot of in, you know, sort of excitement and energy about it. So it, it's a form of radical evangelicalism. Um, and so you have uh, some leaders that are springing up and eventually are kind of making their own name and their own streams. But it's it's the same movement that eventually is going to coalesce towards Pentecostalism. And there's diff- different splits. You have some that are more Baptistic. You have some that are more strongly uh, Wesleyan. And, and that is a very, very large part of it. Um, in fact, the, the in, one of the interesting things, and this occurred to me even just, just in a fresh way as I was thinking about this for, our po- for the podcast – the fascinating thing is 99.999% of all Pentecostals today are uh, bapt- they're Baptistic, so they do not baptize infants, right? They're not paedo-baptist. But early on, they're coming out of Methodism, and so they would have been uh, paedo-baptist in that sense. So it is, it's a very fascinating thing that within a generation, as Pentecostalism sets on, they become Baptistic, again, almost exclusively so that, that's always something we can tease out later if there's more time. But it's just an interesting thought, the way that there is a Baptistic influence that comes through, um, but but largely the theology, the, the theological infrastructure is more Wesleyan. Um, so so but but really the, the the name that you mentioned, Charles Parham, is he's extremely important, but he's not well known. Uh, he basically, unless you're a historian of Pentecostalism, you might never even heard the name. I had never heard his name growing up. Uh, until I got to a, to Bible college, and, and I you probably heard it dropped a couple different times here and there. But William Seymour is much better known. Seymour was his protege. So you've got, and I'll pedal back just a little bit. So in the year, by 1900, again, these stirrings have been going on for at least 20 years or so. They There are apostolic forms of Christianity, as they called themselves, sort of these proto-Pentecostals. Um, there's no there's no clear doctrine of tongues yet. There's no clear doctrine of these other things, but a lot of miraculous healing, a lot of, of mass conversions and these sort of things. Um, but in the year 1901, there is a, a well-known holiness, sort of, again, proto-Pentecostal minister named Charles Parham, Charles Fox Parham. He was originally from Iowa, but he had traveled all over. This was a very transient movement. He's in Oklahoma, he's in Missouri, he's in Texas, he's all over the place, eventually to California. And uh, he is um, preaching this this revivalistic message and so on and so forth. He comes to some convictions um, biblically, and and we could talk about that in a minute in terms of where he's getting these textual. It's basically from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, Acts 1, 8 and Acts 2, 4. And he builds this sort of theological infrastructure around it. He ends up in Topeka, Kansas, again in the year 1901, and he founds what's sort of a a healing house, he called it, slash Bible college. It's basically a a place where he could sort of uh, mentor and pour into young people, younger people, not always like very young, but even 30s and 40s, um, and then sort of disseminate, you know, his his message this way. 
And so it's within this Bible college that they come to, um, goodness, I wonder how much of the story I should, how deep I should go. But there's, let's, let's just say that uh, a, a major event, what they would call, what most Pentecostals who would study this would call sort of the new Pentecost occurs here, uh, right around New Year's Day of 1901. And um, there is a, a young lady named Agnes Osman who is the first in sort of this documentation as you go through it to speak in tongues in this new language. And it, it reaches all of the papers and it really becomes this massive sort of this movement. Um, but but it's more it's more localized, I guess I would say. And so it becomes within the sort of South and Midwest becomes well known and eventually beyond there. But it's not Azusa Street. Azusa Street comes a few years later, right? In 1906. But so Parham becomes sort of a, a big guy within these circles. Um, he, he wouldn't, like, for instance, you know, a, a Southern Baptist in 1901 probably has never heard of him. But within these sort of circles, he becomes a big name in sort of what's called apostolic Christianity. This idea of, again, a new Acts. And so you've got apostles in Acts, right? And you've got tongues and you've got miracles. And so he makes his way down to Texas, Houston, founds a Bible college. And it's there that he mentors William Seymour. Because of Jim Crow, Seymour is not able to attend the classes, he's not able to attend the school, but Parham sort of mentors him on the side. And there's some evidence that, that Parham either listened out the, or that uh, Seymour either sat in the hall to listen to lectures or listened out the window sort of as a, a way to sort of acquiesce Jim Crow laws. Um, but, but Parham, it's interesting because Parham is clearly a white supremacist. And I don't, I don't use that name lightly. He, he writes really, really clear on these things. He's a man of his time. Um, and he even, for instance, he believes that white people are the true descendants of Israel and so are the true inheritors of the Old Testament promises to Israel. So he's, you know, he's, he's a man of his time. It, it is as awful as that is to see. But he really takes to Seymour, this poor black man from, from Louisiana uh, who has, is blind in one eye. And for some reason, the man really just is drawn to him. And so he come, becomes a protege to Parham. And so Parham, sort of long story short, uh, Seymour makes his way to Los Angeles, and he is the one who ends up leading this great Azusa Street revival, taking Parham's theology, which I'll define it this way. Parham is the first one to say that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is evidenced by, the initial physical evidence is speaking in other tongues, glossolalia. And so on the frontier in this radical evangelicalism, they believed in your first blessing is salvation, right? Conversion. Your second blessing is healing or a miraculous work or, or depending on how these things work, uh, sanctification. For your more holiness ones, you have entire sanctification. And so, so there's these subsequent blessings. And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit becomes, it, it becomes more prioritized. It becomes sort of the second blessing, sometimes the third, um, depending on sort of the stream that you're in. And so Parham is the one to say that this subsequent blessing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, evidenced by speaking in tongues, is uh, is something that every Christian should seek. And so it becomes this core part of Pentecostal spirituality. So you wait on it, you seek it. If it means fasting, if it means waiting for days at the altar, you get this, this spirit baptism, and it is uniquely evidenced by tongues. If you haven't spoken in tongues, you don't have it. And, and if you've already spoken in tongues, it's guaranteed that you do have it. And so it becomes the tell-all um, for this experience. And the experience is for empowerment, for ministry. And so, so Seymour takes this theology out to Los Angeles, and um, he's first he goes there. It's a holiness church. When he preaches this, they kick him out. <laughs> 
And so uh, he's not able to continue. And so now he's sort of jobless and he's out in Los Angeles, you know, this what was really a, a new city at the time, this oil city that's springing up out of the, the semi-desert of, of Southern California. And uh, he's, he's able to go and stay with some people who are interested in his message. And really a movement starts. Just very, very small, humble origins on Bonnie Bray Street in Los Angeles. You can still go there today. Eventually move over to Azusa Street. And for two years, from 1906 through 1908, there's this massive movement here. Draws people from all over the country and and becomes really the epicenter of the sort of international Pentecostal movement. It really is the key place. So Parham's Topeka, Kansas is the small spark at the beginning, but it's Parham's theology that really drives the movement. It's Parham's theology of seeking this experience of the initial physical evidence, which still in classical Pentecostalism is the distinctive doctrine. It's this that sort of drives that movement that ultimately people will take back. They'll, they'll go to Zusa. They'll sort of go on their pilgrimage, get the experience, and take it back to North Carolina, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, wherever, India, Mexico. So it becomes international as well. And uh, and yet I, I think there's a whole lot of importance there in terms of the, the spirituality that's articulated there. So how, how are these early Pentecostals describing the gift of tongues? Are they saying that these are other um, human languages? Are they saying the, these are the tongues of angels? How are they how are they describing that? And has that changed um, over time? Or do, do Pentecostals today still describe that gift in the same way that they would 100 years ago? That's a really important question. And it's debated today, was less debated then. So early on, uh, they believed it was Xenolalia, that these are human languages. So you're speaking Mandarin or Egyptian or, or whatever it is. Um, now, you might never know what language you're speaking, right? Because you've not been to the remote villages of Ecuador or Zimbabwe or whatever it is, right? So they, so they didn't always say that they knew what languages it was, but they believed these are human tongues, human languages. And so again, going back to Parham's theology, if this is the new Pentecost, and if God is restoring all these things from the book of Acts, uh, then you would expect sort of this, this mission impulse here. Well, we need to be able to speak all these languages, right? So we there's such an emphasis upon the eschaton. And so we don't have time. Christ is coming back. We don't have time to go learn a language. We don't have time to go study in Bible college. We don't have time to do all these things. And so look, God is going to miraculously give us the languages. So I can go to Botswana and get the gift of tongues and speak to them. And they truly, I mean, this sounds, you know, might sound strange to evangelicals today, but they truly believe this. You have people selling everything that they own, moving to the mission field. And actually the sad thing is that many people become disillusioned to find out that they can't communicate, you know, uh, but they truly believe that these are human tongues. Basically later with some some sort of looking back, some retrospect, they they calculate some of this and just say, well, we just don't know which language you're speaking, so we can't send you out in that way. But maybe God is doing something, and maybe someday we'll be able to. Um, but but basically, um, today, I would say this. Throughout the 20th century, I think for a lot of your grassroots, common Pentecostal folks, they didn't, they didn't, they wouldn't have understood it this way. They would have either understood, like you said, these are languages of angels. These are these are mysterious heaven languages that only God understands. In fact, I heard that language a lot. But for for instance, for the Assemblies of God, the denomination that I grew up in, they still officially believe that these are true human languages. 
And so these are not merely heavenly languages. They're not merely a, a prayer language. Because you'll often hear charismatics say, oh, I've got a private prayer language with God. That would actually be against classical Pentecostal doctrine, at least as articulated by the Sumis of God. But it's really only their leaders <laughs> care about this. I mean, your, your average Pentecostals wouldn't necessarily even know how to answer your question. Um, but but it is an, it's an important thing. And it, it's debated at different seasons throughout the history. But early on, it seems to be that this is widely thought to be human languages. That's super fascinating. I mean, I grew yeah. up in the St. Louis area, so there was a pretty heavily, inf- I yeah, guess, yeah. Pentecostal influence. I don't remember the particular denominational headquarters that's there in St. Louis, but uh, a lot of my friends were Pentecostal. And I remember, mm-hmm. I mean, as weird as this is, as like a 14-year-old, I'm like trying to figure out like, what in the world are you guys talking about? And somehow my parents had this like 1980s book. I had no idea who this guy was at the time. It was John MacArthur's like strange fire, old school book. And I remember reading that <laughs> okay. and being like, this okay. is the answer to what's going on here, <laughs> which I had no clue about anything. Literally yeah. did not know who John MacArthur yeah. was. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, But yeah. I, it's fascinating that the official position is human language is yet um, yeah. the people I talked to would not have that opinion. What? Why is right. that? What happened right. there? Is there just a disconnect? What's going on? It, well, it is. I mean, it's the it's the same reason that. So, I you know, and just for our listeners, the three of us are in the Southern Baptist world, right? And so, there are plenty of things that your seminary educated Southern Baptist person would believe and do that a lot of grassroots Southern Baptists would be like, "What? Huh? No, I don't know." Like, and so it's it's that disconnect between common people who and the, and I would even say this, you know, to to just go back to that analogy, the the majority. Well. It's hard to put numbers on it, so I'll backpedal a little bit. Say, but large numbers of Pentecostal ministers have never been to Bible college, um, and and don't even either they don't think it's necessary, or even would have a badge of honor that they don't have it. Um, again, certain denominations and in, in certain you know sort of tribes, so to speak, of Pentecostal life, you will have plenty of people. Again, you know, I went to a Pentecostal Bible college, and, and there was value there. Uh, but but for a lot of people, you don't have that. And so once you get, I mean, you go down a step below that to your average sort of lay people, it's just a very popular religion. Um, and so there's not, and I say popular just in the sense of common, right? And so they, they're not reading religious uh, literature. They're not studying theology. They're getting sort of a popular, often sometimes, not always, but sort of even a folk theology from the pulpit. And so when you go down a level below that, it's just, it's just very, it's, it's very hard for there to be any sort of cohesion. So like, for instance, in the Summies of God, they hold the 16 fundamental truths, sort of their doctrinal confession, like the Baptist faith and message for, for Southern Baptists. And yet I, I would say a very small percentage of, of Pentecostals could even tell you half of, of what those doctrines are. Um, because it's just not part of their daily life. Their life is very spirituality driven, very Bible driven. They're Bible people, um, and and very sincere and, and missions oriented. And yet, a lot of the things that your you know your leaders would would believe just there. To your point, there's a disconnect. Yeah, I have a question about how how wide ranging the um, soteriological views are within Pentecostalism today. Um, most of the Pentecostals that I have, some of my family. Uh, most of the ones that I knew growing up did not believe, for instance, in the eternal security of the believer. Um, like, so are, are there are there five point Calvinists who are, uh, you know, Pentecostals, or is there just one dominant view of their soteriology? There's probably one five point Calvinist somewhere. <laughs> uh, there's there's not many. So there's very 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 few Reformed Pentecostals. 
Um, but there, I mean, there's a few. Uh, I know that there's a few in the Church of God, uh, Cleveland, Tennessee. You know, from that were connected with Lee University at one point. Um, there, there's a like. I, I think in my college, by the time I was graduating college, I was theologically reformed and still considered myself Pentecostal up to part of that time. And 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 so there was like one other guy that I knew at school who was reformed, but it's very very rare. So there's no that that I'm aware of. I don't know of any denomination network or anything like that that would be more reformed. There there there, but there is some range, and so you have some that are more classically Arminian. You have some that are very Wesleyan. Um, but so, I mean, for all of it, so, I mean, to your point, I, I never met a Pentecostal that would have believed in the security of the believer, um, but there might be some and, and yet, I mean, it's extremely Arminian and, and yet again, even below that, you get down to the more popular level and it, it's, it's even more loose from there. Um, it, there, there is a, a sense in which salvation is, is very much something that can come and go. You can be saved and unsaved many times within your life, uh, whether it's a serious sin or you know, neglect of your spiritual duties, or or whatever it is, and so salvation is. Th- this is this is certainly not fair of their leaders. This is certainly not fair of their doctrinal statements. But for for some Pentecostals, it it, it sort of becomes a works righteousness. It, it's something to be to be earned. They have such a strong view of, of holiness, many of them, um, and so for some, it's sort of the popular level. It looks more like that, but. But if you're if you're picking up a Pentecostal scholar, you know that's talking about soteriology. I mean. Nine times out of ten, he's going to be Arminian, he or she, and uh, and yet again, there's there's a few apparently that are that are more reformed. I had uh, I don't want to out anybody because <laughs> it was always you know I had I had a professor I could say it that way in college who was reformed, and uh, and that was actually helpful for me as I was grappling with some of these things. But but even then, it was it it would have been very unusual, um, and so there's no like official group that I'm aware. It would be that way until you get to charismatics. And, and I guess we could talk about that in a little bit, but charismatics, there's a whole bunch of reform people. Um, but, but I'm really thinking about classical Pentecostalism basically, or should I, you want me to re- define that? Yes, do that. Okay. So classical Pentecostalism goes back to the original Azusa street movement, goes back to this theology of Charles Parham that I laid out. I, I hope I laid it out fairly clearly. And, and basically you have groups like the Assemblies of God, um, which is one of the larger ones, based in Springfield, Missouri. You have the Pentecostal Holiness Church, uh, which is very southern. It's primarily in the southeast. It used to be headquartered in Georgia. Now it's headquartered in Oklahoma City. Um, uh, the historian, Pentecostal historian Vincent Sinan was a, was a big part of, of their work. Uh, he's the one who founded the Society for Pentecostal Studies, which is basically the scholarly group of Pentecostalism. And uh, there's the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. I mentioned them. And, and then there is, so there's also the church of God, Anderson, Indiana, but they're not Pentecostal. They're holiness, not Pentecostal. And, uh, then there's the church of God in Christ, which is an African American denomination. They are the largest Pentecostal denomination. I, I can't tell you how many times I heard growing up as in, in the Assemblies of God, that Assemblies of God was the largest Pentecostal denomination in the United States. They're not. They're the largest white, primarily white denomination uh, the Kojic, as it's often called, uh, Church of God in Christ, is is quite a bit larger than the Assemblies of God. Now, the Assemblies of God is larger internationally. That is true. They are enormous internationally. But in the United States, they're just a few million. You know, it's it's, it's relatively small compared to Southern Baptists or uh, maybe they'd be closer to like what United Methodists would be today. Um, and the other one I would mention is Foursquare. So Foursquare is a classical Pentecostal domination. But from Foursquare, you've got some offshoots. So you've got um, uh, 
Chuck Smith. Uh, what is it called? Cha- um, Calvary no, Chapel. Calvary Chapel. You got some offshoots there. But Foursquare is founded by Amy Simple McPherson, and it's a classical Pentecostal denomination. And then you've got um, a, a, a heterodox group, um, the uh, Oneness Pentecostal. So the UPC, United Pentecostal, they are sort in that classical Pentecostal strain, and yet they they would not be evangelical in that sense. They would not be orthodox. And there's a, and I think that that a lot of Pentecostals would even recognize the gap there. I, I remember a, 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 one of my professors saying that we have we speaking of Pentecostals as he spoke about himself, he says we have more common with you know Presbyterians and Baptists than we do with the UPC because we're Trinitarian, and so so there is a recognition of that. But again, it's sort of the popular level. You know, you might be at a at a Southern Gospel concert, and you might hear someone who's you know Assemblies of God singing, and then you might hear someone who's UPC singing, and they wouldn't necessarily even notice that. Okay, these are pretty different strains here, um, but at least at, at one level, there is some awareness of that. So, one thing that I I've heard quite often when it comes to Pentecostalism is this idea of Holy Spirit baptism. Can you walk me through what that is, and it, or even if there is just one understanding of it? Maybe there's. It seems like with a lot of this stuff, there's quite a bit of variance depending on who you're talking to. So just give me a little bit of the lay of the land if that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. And that goes back to this distinction of classical Pentecostalism. It's funny to call it classical. It's only like 120 years old. <laughs> so it's not all that classic, right? But for Pentecostals, it's old, right? Um, and so in, in you all let me know, I, I can trace out basically what's the difference between charismatics and third wave and all that. That might help clarify that, but at least for classical charismatic or for classical Pentecostals, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the cardinal doctrine. It is the reason they exist. It is their distinctive doctrine. And it's actually, it's interesting. It's, it's been somewhat in debate the last two or three years in their general assembly, which is like their, their annual convention in the Assemblies of God, for instance, there's been some pushback in some of these things that we could talk about that more later. But historically, this has been the cardinal doctrine. So Acts 1.8, right, speaks about this empowerment. Um, you all know the text. So uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So that's the empowerment. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is 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 not tied to conversion. It is a subsequent blessing. It is a subsequent empowerment that all Christians should seek. So it's not merely for like a, a sort of an elite. It's for everyone. They they want to encourage that. If you're a Christian, you should seek this. Um, and yet it is a subsequent blessing, um, not merely, um, and I'll try not to chase this rabbit, but not merely a gift of tongues. That's more in the charismatic circles that you'll you'll hear more about that. Pentecostals often confuse those things, but at least at, at the sort of leadership level, <laughs> it's it's this empowerment for missions. And then it's Acts 2.4 is their other key text, which says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. So the evidence, they said, and this is going back to Charles Parham, Agnes Osmond, and this group in Topeka, Kansas, saying that basically um, you get this subsequent feeling and it will always be evidenced by speaking in tongues. Uh, and that could happen alone in your bedroom. It could happen at the altar, at a, at a revival meeting. It doesn't matter where. But once you have that, it's something that you have. Uh, so it's not merely refillings that you need. There, there are refillings in their mind, and there, there are some that might have the gift of tongues and prophecy and all this. But every Christian should seek this empowerment in sort of Acts 1-8 style to then go be witnesses. Then it goes back to that idea of, again, they believe this is in Alalia. They believe these are human languages. 
um, even if eventually that sort of is less emphasized and to some extent even sort of uh, intentionally forgotten because of the fact that things didn't work out how they expected. So you mentioned it was intentionally forgotten. And this, so this question is um, it's a little bit more of a personal question. So if you want to punt it, feel free, no yeah. pressure at yeah. all. Yeah. Um, what do you, what do you, in your estimation, and I'm asking you to speculate here, but what do you think happened at Azusa Street? Do you think this was just deception? They, they were deceiving themselves. Was there something actually going on that they just misunderstood after the fact? Um, I, Cause I, obviously you left Pentecostalism for a reason. I don't know if this was the reason I'm just asking, what do you think? What do you think happened there? Okay. Now speaking to our listeners, if you are a Pentecostal, go ahead and tune out. And no, no I'm kidding, kidding. <laughs> no, actually, I, I don't think I would have anything to say that would be offensive uh, to Pentecostals. But, but what I would say is Grant Wacker's book, Heaven Below, uh, Grant Wacker's professor at Duke Divinity, incredible book. And he's very sympathetic. This is not someone who's trying to speak down at these you know, lowly Pentecostals, but he has a really good way of approaching this as a, as a really keen historian of sort of looking at the phenomena. What happened? It, on one hand, giving them the benefit of the doubt, but then also sort of to your question, I mean, well, what was happening? I mean, if, if, if we're not Pentecostals, which I'm not, you know, that there has to be some sense of, well, I, I'm not doing that. And so, so was there something wrong? At the end of the day, I think that there are really powerful psychological forces that can affect people. And I can just say it that way. I mean, sort of, and I'm not saying that's all it was, but I think that that, that there's a part of that. There's an incredibly powerful psychological force, the power of suggestion. Um, and, and I don't mean to say this to be offensive, but, but at least in some cases, um, you can liken this to the way that a magician is able to use suggestion um, and so was this done intentionally? I think very rarely, if ever, I don't think that these things were necessarily done intentionally, but I think that there could be some, some form of suggestion that just becomes very powerful. And, and at the end of the day, and the thing I do want to say really clearly, and I, and I still believe this, I mean, you have people who just really love Jesus. You have people who just really want this blessing. You're, yeah, you want you the Great Commission, right? Let's go take the, you know. So if the Bible says that I can get this empowerment, you become convinced that this preacher's, you know, uh, you know, theological formula as he's laying this out. You know, you're going to seek it, and there, there's such sort of, um, sort of pressure sometimes just even within your own self that you want it that that it could be uh, easily taken. So there's a lot of stuff that I could say. I, I can say this as well. And, and I don't think that this speaks for the movement as a whole, uh, but sometimes it's peer pressure. Yeah. And sometimes it is, it's something that's done. And, I, and I've seen this and, and, and this isn't why, I mean, to answer your question, I can say this with a clear conscience. It's not why I left Pentecostalism. Uh, and when I became, when I joined as members of Baptist church, I still was sort of a closet Pentecostal. I still would have, you know, practiced some of these things. It's no longer the case. And it, it, it didn't, it, it's not something that lasted a long time, but it was actually soteriology and ecclesiology and some other things that was important for me that led me in a different direction. Um, but, but so it wasn't that it wasn't like, oh, I'm done with these Pentecostals. I'm, I'm not yeah. sure about all this tongue stuff. But, but, uh, what I would say is that there, there, there are plenty of times that I have seen and people who I know who have just been like hurt that have been sort of peer pressured, to have this experience because yeah. without it, and I was often told this without it, you're sort of a second class Christian. You're, you're yeah. maybe it's you're, you're lacking in holiness or maybe sincerity or just, you know, you're, maybe you're lazy spiritually, whatever it is. And so there is this great pressure. And again, if you're going to, if you want to go be a missionary, 
I mean, how dare you go? <laughs> Who are you to think you can go do this without the Holy Spirit's empowerment? And so there's this great pressure. Um, and yet, I say that to say, I think the vast majority of Pentecostals are very sincere and eager, and and I think that um, that there there there's some some explanations there. But yeah, I would recommend people to read. There, there's other great books too, but I, I think Grant Wackers is a very sympathetic and careful uh, account, as well as Vincent Sinan's um, book, The Holiness Pentecostal Tradition. He traces some of these things too, and he was a Pentecostal himself uh, with a PhD from the University of Georgia. Good good historian. And uh, he passed away recently. But yeah, there's some good works out there. Yeah, I think, uh, as I think about all my Pentecostal friends, I, I think almost all of them were extremely genuine and they were true believers. Um, but I, all the stuff that you said there, I, I could definitely sense that. Um, one question I had, uh, and maybe this just isn't, this is not true, but when I look at the landscape, at least in America, of like word of faith preachers, um, yeah, yeah. those that are more keen on sort of prosperity gospel. It seems that this gets connected somehow to Pentecostalism more often than others. Is there a reason for that? Is that a coincidence? Is there something inherent that sort of lead, leans in that direction? It, why is that the case, or is it not? And I, I just before you start, I'm sorry, I have a follow-up question to to yeah. tie into that. I, I want to know the same thing Jordan asked, but also maybe can you tie it in the, for the the historical development, like uh, yeah. you know, of the uh, the word faith stuff, the prosperity gospel. You know, we yeah, think yeah. about um, you, you know Oral Roberts and, and all of this yeah. stuff. Like, it, are those two totally different streams that come together, or did they kind of flow out of one another? That's where I was going to go with it. So I mean, you're, I mean, I think you're you know, sharp to see that, Brandon. I mean, I, I was basically going to say that, yeah, I think it's a historical phenomenon. I don't think it's really a, a, a theological tie in the sense of that there's a logical consequence. If you believe Pentecostal things, you become that. I don't think it's that at all. I think it's historical phenomenon. Um, this comes out of this, again, this radical evangelicalism and so on. Basically, I'll give you like a real quick sketch of these different um, phases or waves, sometimes they're called waves, but there's more than three. Um, and so sometimes that like third wave, it's a little bit of a misnomer, but basically you, you have, so I've already told the story of classical Pentecostalism. So that kind of settles that uh, basically, which happens historically everywhere, whether you're a Baptist or Presbyterian or whatever you are with these different moves of revivalism, um, there's sort of a calming period. And by the 19 teens and twenties, formal denominations are formed and and things in some way become more established and a lot of that fervor and fire kind of cools down a little bit and by the 1930s there's i mean pentecostals in in many way i mean just look like other evangelicals um they're dispensational they're arminian you know they have some things that look a little distinctive in their spirituality but there's this yearning for something sort of a renewal movement and that comes in the form of the latter rain movement and that's in the late 1940s, actually first starting in Canada, then working its way through the United States. But 1948 and following is this new, this renewal that is a bit more radical. In fact, it's it's so radical that a lot of your denominations like the Assemblies of God and so on actually disown it. They say, you know, we, we're actually not okay <laughs> with with all this. And, and I have to look back. I don't know if there was like an official, official denominational statement against it. They do do that sometimes. But but certainly as a whole, most or many Pentecostals are sort of very leery of, of the latter rain movement. And it has some of these impulses that you're asking about, Jordan. So, ha- but, but I would even say, and I'll kind of press pause on my history here, and then maybe I can cycle back around. 
The roots actually go back more to the New Thought movement in the early 19th century, which is related to Scientology. Basically, that you can speak your reality, that you can speak things into existence, that our words have a sort of creative power. Um, and then later, it's going to have its own sort of little God theology that we are like God in the same way, in the sense of we're just a little bit smaller than him. We're God, small g, and so on. And so so it goes back to that a little bit. But it's this latter rain movement, these 1950s, where this becomes more prominent. Oral Roberts is coming out of this era, and so on, a lot of these guys. Now, they look a little bit more light in terms of this, as opposed to some of the guys you get going later, Norval Hayes, Kenneth Copeland, and some of these guys become even more extreme in these ways. But it's coming out of the same era. So now returning, so so again, we've got sort of your first wave, Pentecostalism, second wave, latter rain, and then there's the birth of the charismatic movement. And it's also a little bit suspect to Pentecostals. We don't know if these people, so they seem to be speaking in tongues, but they don't exactly believe the same things we do. And the weirder thing to the Pentecostals is that they stay within their own denominations. They stay within Episcopalian. They stay within the Southern Baptist Convention. They stay within Presbyterianism, whereas Pentecostals had left their denominations and and start their own tradition, right? their own movements, uh, their own organizations, and so on. And so the charismatic movement, again, continues some of that same stuff. Sometimes they're called neo-Pentecostals. Going back to that question earlier about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they do not believe strictly in the initial physical evidence formula that I gave you from Acts 1.8 and, and Acts 2.4. So they would not follow Parham. They would not follow the things. But, but at least externally, it looks very similar. And so if you see someone speaking in tongues and you're a, you know, a, a, a Presbyterian, you're in the PCA, it looks like the same thing to you. But, but, but within their denominations, within their, there's some different theolog- theological approach to it. To, so for, for some of them, it's just, oh, it's just a gift, right? Some people get it. Some people don't, you know, not all that important. Um, we could emphasize it, but we could emphasize healing as well. We could emphasize some of these other things. Um, you've got sort of the Jesus movement that I described earlier. That's sort of connected to the charismatic movement, basically 1959, 1960, and that's going on through the 1970s. And then there's the third wave which is sort of your neo-charismatics. If, if your charismatics were neo-Pentecostals, your third wave people, uh, like the Vineyard Movement and so on, these people are uh, sort of neo-charismatics. And they're even, they're, they're a little bit lighter. And so, you know, people like Wayne Grudem and, and others were influenced by, um, you know, the Vineyard Movement and, and some of these, you know, third wave charismatics. Um, and that, that goes on through the 1980s and into the 90s. But it is, it's a much lighter movement than going back to the earlier charismatic movement, or even going back to the latter reign, a lot of your third wave charismatics really look like evangelicals, just with a stronger uh, pneumatology, with a little bit more experience-oriented um, contemporary worship music, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of the big picture. But now going back to, to your question, Jordan, and so so a lot of it goes back to this parallel historical development that's going on, this new thought movement, Kenyon and these guys. There's a great book, and this is for you, Jordan, or for anybody, to our listeners, um, it's by Kate Bowler, who's a professor, I believe, at Duke Divinity. She, I know she did her PhD there. It's called Blessed, and it's a history of, let me just look at the title, a History of the American Prosperity Gospel. And so she traces the intellectual sort of foundation for this, very closely connected to Pentecostalism, and yet kind of becoming its own thing. Um, and you have sort of your lighter people like Joyce Meyer and Joel Osteen, who would be on the line of sight. And then you have some that are more extreme, Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, Norval Hayes, guys like this, where, I mean, on on sort of the more extreme side, 
I mean, it is strongly heterodox in every single way and, and explicitly in so many ways aberrant of, of the gospel and, and so many things like that. Your lighter versions sometimes are a little bit harder to detect, but yet also would in many ways be heterodox and so on. And so it doesn't, you know, and, and I don't think in any way is it intrinsically linked to sort of Pentecostal doctrine in the sense of there's a logical conclusion that goes there. But just historically, it developed that way that the, uh, the, the, the great um, emphasis upon healing, miracles, wholeness, holiness, and all these sort of things. And so that there's, there's some of those things are still seen by it, but it really becomes its own movement. It's denounced by your major Pentecostal denominations. Um, it's not considered part of them. And yet they're able to move in those same circles very often because of just the off theological approach for a lot mm-hmm. of these churches, experience-based approach, and the fact that there's just not as much, you know, again, just doctrinal discernment. And so very often you'll find someone who is, you know, a member of a four-square church or a member of a Church of God, you know, church and and would be listening to or, or reading books by, you know, prosperity theology guys, prosperity preachers, and would would sometimes say, I don't know, it seems a little bit weird and yet would not really be able to put their finger on it. So there is some influence there within Pentecostalism, and yet it really is sort of its own its own animal. Is, is that helpful? I hope it is. It is. Yeah. So forgive me forgive me if I if I missed it, but which one of those waves or streams does Bethel uh come out of? Because they're so uh influential, I, I think I, be, it would be, be helpful to wave. ask. Okay. Yeah, I think they'd be third wave. Um and really again they're driven more I mean, a lot of it is sorts the music, right? Just really important music and experience this way. Um so when I was pastoring in Northern California, people would often you know, make their little trek up to um, to Redding, where where Bethel is, in in like the far, far northern California, and a lot of times it looks like an evangelical service. You know, like you would at any you know non denominational church or even some Baptist churches, with a lot of emphasis in contemporary worship music and a little bit of you know lots of hand raising and things like that. Um, and yet, yeah, it's it, and now it's kind of become it's it's sort of its own brand, right? And so it's kind of broadened from there. But I'm I'm pretty sure they come out of the third wave, yeah. So one thing I'm curious about, I think there's quite a few people who, I don't know, over the last 10 to 15 years that I've seen, almost say that like Pentecostalism basically on a global scale is the new major denomination that's on the rise and it's eventually going to take over everything. Is is the same? Is there the same sort of history behind global Pentecostalism as there is American? I I have no clue. When global Pentecostal, like when Pentecostalism in Africa starts, if that's right. somehow kicked off by Azusa or something like, I don't have any idea. So, can you help me understand the more global perspective on Pentecostalism? Yeah, I mean, to to answer your question from the start, I mean, it is enormous. Uh, more than six hundred million Pentecostals worldwide, and that's part that's part of my interest going back. And I don't, maybe I didn't say this at the beginning, but just that's enormous, right? As a cross section of global Christianity, uh, and it is growing significantly in the global South, uh, Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Latin America. Just massive growth. Part of it goes back to that missionary impulse that I described. I mean, they are just all about missions. 
And, and very often, I mean, it's like sacrificial work. Like there's, they don't have a cooperative program. And so this is raising your own money. This is, you know, selling your belongings, going and living, you know, again, in, in the bush in Africa or in some small village in Ecuador or Brazil or whatever it is. I mean, so there's this really eager sacrificial work to, to, to it. To, to answer another part of your question, it, it comes out of Azusa Street to, to some large extent. But I would also say that to say, and Pentecostals have, have often, you know, I've had conversations with them about this. There are some parallel movements going on in places like India. You know, we're all familiar with the Welsh revival and sort of got Keswick spirituality. There, there's a Pentecostal, so there's sort of a parallel movement going on in England. And so there are all kinds of revivals going on throughout the 19th century all over, right? I mean, and so so it's, it's you know, I, it's hard to say that, okay, all of this is coming from Azusa, but in large part, uh, I, I, I'm convinced, you know, and I'm, I'm constantly trying to do more reading on this. It's so hard historically to kind of connect the dots, but, um, but it does seem a lot of this comes from Azusa and then is sent out. Not, not again, some people come internationally to Azusa and then take it back home directly themselves sometimes. And again, the large percentage I think are missionaries being sent out from North America and then from other places. So South Korea, a lot of Pentecostals in South Korea and so on. Um, some of this, it's hard to put numbers on it, but some of this is your sort of word of faith Pentecostalism, right? Especially in Africa. Um, it, it, it seems to be a little bit less in Latin America, but certainly in parts of Asia and so on, this massive Pentecostal church of tens of thousands of pe- uh, people in, um, in Seoul, South Korea, uh, it seems to be, um, a, a word of faith sort of Pentecostalism. And so, so th- those things concern me. But but as far as, you know, just understanding how these things have grown, you can kind of trace the missionary movements. I was having lunch with a pastor from Nigeria a couple of weeks ago. He's a pastor in Atlanta now, but he's Nigerian and grew up in Nigeria, did seminary here and then stayed. And um, and he was describing some of the, the, the work there. He, he was saying the Baptist work goes back in his country, you know, to like the 1850s. And he's able to describe these, these you know, long Baptist institutions, seminaries and so on. And he said the Pentecostals have really only been since the 1970s. So we're chatting about that. When I was in, um, I spent time in Ecuador and in Guatemala, and I'm always asking those same questions, at least anecdotally. I can read some books, I can look at stats, but I'm always curious, like, to what's the perception of people who are there? And uh, and it is it, for for evangelicals in in some of these parts of the world, they really feel, you know, sort of a pressure of of the growth of Pentecostalism. But but at the same time, I think to some extent, what happened here in the United States will happen elsewhere. Eventually, these movements settle, become established, become institutionalized. And and uh, some of the fire calms a little bit. I mean, historically, that always happens. And so that, then that'll be interesting with this. So again, if we if you've got you know a billion Pentecostals, if, if numbers continue by 2050 or whatever it is, I mean, all, there's all kinds of estimates, right? Um, what will it look like as it sort of it becomes more established? That'll be that'll be really interesting. Cool. I I don't know. I I think one last question that I can ask here is just how prevalent is the, it, I think you called it the UPC, the, the oneness Pentecostals. Is that right? Why is it? Well, I guess yeah. number one, why is it you if it seems like it's a oneness? And, United Pentecostal oh, Church. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. Now I know. Yeah. Like, because it was, uh, it's kind of like the, the United Methodists. They were, uh, they sort of merged got, a couple different groups. How, how prevalent is the, the, the unorthodox views on the Trinity within Pentecostalism? So, so they're a minority. But I mean, I would say a fairly substantial minority. So I don't, again, I, I don't know if it would be 10% or 15%. Um, but I mean, they're in, I think their denomination is maybe, you know, three and a half, four million. So that's good size. 
Um, but uh, but it, it would it would be very uncommon within your other denominations. So your Church of God in Christ, your um, your Church of God, your Assemblies of God. I, I, I think those views. Now, I mean, you ask any evangelical to define the Trinity, you know, and you sort of be careful for what you might hear. So I'm sure that's true in Pentecostalism as well. We all know that. Um, sort of just you learn not to ask, right? But um, but I, I think that there might be some who would, you know, use the egg or whatever, you know, use some some sort of modalism or whatever it would be. But um, but as a denomination, they kind of to some extent stay to themselves. There are some some interdenominational spaces where they come together, and some Pentecostals are very ecumenical within Pentecostalism. Vincent Sinan was one, and, and the Society for Pentecostal Studies is another place where there's a lot of overlap and conferences and things like that. But to some extent, I think they're partially siloed. I don't think it's all that influential. I don't. I certainly don't see them growing significantly. Um, but it, but as a whole, Pentecostalism in the United States, um, among among you know citizens of the United States, it would be different among immigrant groups coming here. A lot of them, it looks a little different. But for for Americans um, that have been established here, Pentecostalism has been plateaued for about a generation, just like Southern Baptists, just like a lot of other groups. And so they're not growing significantly. A lot of the growth is in third world and among other immigrant groups that would come here. I think I joked maybe even our last episode, there's a lot of Latino Pentecostals. And so, and so as they come to the United States, they'll build massive churches Go to California. Some of your biggest churches are immigrant Latinos that have brought their theology with them from Guatemala or Honduras or wherever, and they've established their churches. And so, so there's some. It looks like growth there, um, but it, it seems to stall out, just like other groups. You know, sort of the, the inertia that has to be to be overcome. Yeah. Okay, I lied. One more question. So you you yeah, mentioned Latino sort of stuff. I, I am curious. Is there more of a range of ethnic and racial diversity in Pentecostalism than other denominations? And if that's true, what's the driving factor? Is it immigration or is it something else? That's such a good question. I regret that I didn't mention more about that because that is something that makes Pentecostalism pretty unique, especially during the Jim Crow era, so early 1900s, right? It was a very er, uh, interracial movement. Um, it was so, so all of sort of the racial lines, you know, on, in these revivals very often, you know, I mean, it is just an incredible display of unity in that way. So again, William Seymour, a black man leading this, this movement that now there's it. So, I mean, you have plenty of people having to overcome it. So for instance, you can read about, uh, you know, one man who says, you know, I, I, it took me days to finally let a black man touch me to pray for me, but then he did. And I got filled with the Holy ghost and I've repented of my um, prejudice or whatever it would be. And so you have plenty of people having to overcome these things because again, Jim Crow South, I mean, not just the South, of course it's, again, it's in Los Angeles as well. It's everywhere. I mean, it was just a dark, dark time again, where you wouldn't even, you know, a white person might not even be willing to sit next to a black person on the bus. Right. I mean, we, so we think about this, so that's what makes it all the more remarkable. Um, but I mean, it's easy, it's easy to sort of paint this, uh, or to use another analogy, it's easy to look at this with rose colored glasses because, the denominations, as soon as they're founded, become white and black. So the Assemblies of God becomes the white denomination. Church of God in Christ becomes the black denomination. So organizationally, they're not able to come together. So they remain separate. There's a little bit of fellowship here and there. There's a little bit. But again, it's just it's such a strong cultural sort of force wind that it doesn't last. And so today and throughout the 20th century, are they more diverse? Yeah, maybe, but probably not a whole lot. I mean, may, are they more diverse than your average non-denominational church? Maybe. 
than your average Southern Baptist church, maybe, but not a whole lot. Um, it's basically going to be your mega church phenomenon that tend to be a little bit easier to sort of mix, but denominationally, they are still very divided. Um, so for instance, at, you know, at my Bible college, you know, it was 95% white. And then you've got a few, you know, internationals and one or two Latinos and African-American, but again, yeah, you really, they sort of stay in their own worlds, which often again is even reflected in the way that they're not even aware. So the church of God in Christ, you know, they might not even be aware of what's going on in the AG church or the AG denomination down the road. They really kind of stay in their own spheres and vice versa, of course. Well, this has been super interesting. So I've got these two resources, Grant Wacker, Heaven Below, Kate Bowler, Blessed. Is there another resource you would say, man, you got to read this? Yeah, I would say for a good sort of historical overview, Vincent Sinan's the Holiness Pentecostal Tradition is really good. Uh, it's easy to understand, easy to follow. And if you're in a church history, I mean, it, it, it does a really good job of sort of just tracing the history. If I could say one more, though, it's it's a biography on William Seymour. It's by uh, Gaston Espinoza, and it's William J. Seymour and the Origins of Global Pentecostalism. Really good. Uh, it actually includes a few primary sources in the text as well. But, it, but a good just sort of read on Azusa and Seymour, excellent book. Awesome. Well, this has been really fun. So thanks, Paul, for joining us. And for everybody who's been listening, go check out uh, Paul on Twitter. You've, what, what's your Twitter handle? Paul Sanchez 408. So go follow him. Paul's awesome, uh, as is all of his research. So if you're a nerd and you're going to be like ETS or something, you'll have to go introduce yourself and learn more about his stuff and ask for, ask for his papers and everything. So thanks, Paul, for joining us and everybody who's been tuning in. Thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.